We're in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. If you turn with me in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Before we get into the word tonight, just want to open up an opportunity for prayer. If you're uh, going through a difficult time and you would like uh, to receive prayer, I just want to give you an opportunity to do that. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, challenges that are going on in your hearts, uh, in your life. And uh, so just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand and then we'd like to just rally around you and to, to pray for you. So you don't have to go into uh, specifics, but just uh, if you know you're having challenges uh, in any area of your life, physical, financial, relational, spiritual, just want to give the Lord an opportunity to encourage you this evening. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ, and we thank you that we're not alone as we uh, go through this life. And Lord, we know it can be challenging in so many different ways when we come to the end of ourselves. And God, we pray for those tonight that are at a place of, of discouragement in their lives and needing encouragement, whether it's and finances, or physically, or just weary and tired, or facing sickness, Lord, or broken relationships, Lord, or spiritually feel that they're in a fog, Lord, would you minister to their hearts? If, that, if that's you this evening, would you just raise your hand to the Lord and just leave it up, and don't miss out on this opportunity if you just came needing prayer. I mean, like, man, I would love for someone to pray for me this evening. Just raise your hand to the Lord, and so if the rest of us, if you just lift uh, your eyes around the sanctuary and find somebody with their hands lifted, you go ahead and stand up, go, f- go find them, put, put hands on them. So you, let's make sure everybody that's got their hands up has got someone praying for them. There's some in the back uh, that have got their hands up, and let's just make sure everybody's getting prayed for. Yeah, and then I'm just going to lead us in a prayer, and if you'd be in agreement uh, with me, uh, no, let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for each person that had the courage to respond this evening, and Lord, we want to just lay hands on them in, in Jesus' name, and Lord, you know the specifics that are going on uh, in their life, and you tell us that you're our daily bread. You're, you're the manna from heaven. So Lord, would you provide the specific need Lord, where there is need for physical healing, we pray that you would provide it. Where there's need for, God, encouragement uh, relationally, where there's loneliness and there's, there's depression, or where there's need for finances. Lord, you know all of these things, and we lift it up to you, God. So Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We ask that you would bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Thank you, guys. Does anybody find it, it difficult to uh, receive evaluation? Maybe it's uh, sitting down with your boss and you get your annual review and are a little bit anxious about what they, they may say about your performance, uh, wondering what they're going to encourage you in and then maybe what the feedback for areas of growth. Maybe it's uh, receiving honest evaluation from your spouse where you really do want to know uh, what they think but at the same time like this is going to be a difficult process to to uh, go through these seven letters that we're studying over the last several weeks is God's evaluation of the church and the church means so much to Christ the church is the lampstand the church is is the body of Christ 
And Jesus, as the head of the church, is able to give this meaningful instruction to each church. And hopefully we're willing to bring our lives under the evaluation of Christ, where, where he can bring us the instruction that we need. So the first letter to the first church was the church of Ephesus. They were the loveless church. They'd left their first love. Then Smyrna was the persecuted church. No correction given to the church of Smyrna. Helps us reevaluate suffering in our lives. That sometimes suffering is used by the Lord to keep us close to the Lord. Pergamos, if you remember, was the compromising church. They had the doctrine of Balaam. And then Thyatira, the corrupt church, specifically sexual immorality. Sardis was the dead church. And then tonight's going to be the church of Philippi, which is the faithful church. The church of Laodicea, which is lukewarm. As we've looked at these seven churches, five of them are severely flawed, but yet Jesus is very much in their midst. And this encourages us to remain committed to one another. Christ is into the church. Christ is into to the body. And we want to make sure that we stay committed to each other even in our weaknesses. Isn't it encouraging that Christ doesn't pack up and move out uh, when we fall short? He remains faithful. He's going to remain in our lives to instruct and bring that correction. So this is the church of Philadelphia. Verse 7 in Philippians 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy... He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Philadelphia was 28 miles southwest of Sardis. Remember, these seven churches are in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They were noted for their agricultural products. They were affected with earthquakes. The earthquakes had had pounded uh, Philadelphia. The city was named after uh, the king who built it, The Greek word is similar to the Greek word brotherly love. The city Philadelphia has the name brotherly love. This church has two attributes of Christ that are ascribed. We see the holiness of Christ and also the one who closes doors and no one can open. Each church had their own attribute of Christ that was assigned to them. When we think of Christ's ability to open doors and close doors, this is a quote out of Isaiah chapter 22. And this has a lot to do with the Christian life, is being able to discern when God has opened a door and when God has closed a door. And we spend a lot of our time trying to open doors that God has closed. Ever been in that place, right? I really want this to happen. God, please let this happen. I want to open this door, but... Nope, it's not going to open. God has closed that door, and no one is going to open. And then other times, when the Lord has opened the door, to have the willingness to be able to walk through it. We were taking a look at the foyer, and over the last uh, couple years, a lot has changed in our foyer. I've attempted to try to make it more warm and and friendly. Uh, And when we first built out uh, this side of the building, there's a lot of glass and we didn't have all of the, the glass, uh, something in front of it to indicate that indeed there, there was a window there and it wasn't a door. Uh, and there was several people from the congregation that met the glass with their forehead, right? Uh, there was at one point, we, the ladies, I wasn't at the event, but had a pretty prominent nationally known speaker that came to do their women's spring event, and she walked right into the glass r- right over here. And so 
Thankfully, we have fixed that. Our insurance company is glad that we've uh, fixed that, right? Uh, you should be thankful that we've fixed that. But, but I don't know if you've ever had that experience when you've walked into something that you thought was an open door, and indeed, uh, it, it was not, right? It's quite, quite surprising, isn't it? And, and this is the attribute that's assigned to the Church of Philadelphia because God has an open door that was set before them. It was an encouragement. In John's gospel, Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door. And it's comforting to know in our lives that, that he closes doors and that he opens doors. And so verse 6, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. The commendation or the encouragement for the Church of Philadelphia is, I know your works. It's short, but it's powerful. Jesus knows what you're doing in the service unto the Lord. And then we see a, a threefold promise given to the Church of Philadelphia, the undefiled church. And the first is, there is an open door and no one can shut it. So if you're taking notes, write down divine opportunity, divine opportunity. The Church of Philadelphia has a divine opportunity. And there's nothing better than that in our lives. When we think about us as a church family, Rocky Mountain Calvary, wouldn't it be great if God was gracious enough to continue to open up doors for us? You know, we, we can't make that happen. That's, that's up to the Lord. That's his sovereignty, his will, if he chooses to open doors for us as a, as a church family. For us personally, isn't it exciting when God opens up a door for you? If you get to share with a neighbor, you get to share with a family member, he puts someone in your life that you can give to uh, financially, that you get to speak the gospel in, in, into their life. You go, wow, God, this feels so good to realize my kingdom purposes inside of, of my life. And this is a reward that God has given to the church of Philippi. This is unique to this church where Jesus writes and says, look, you're being faithful and so I'm opening up a door for you. This is a church where Jesus sees fit that he can use them for his glory and, and for his purposes. I, I was reminded about the venture in faith with the campus in Ellicott. You know, it's been a lot of years of knocking on a lot of doors uh, and thinking, Lord, you may open this door and then God closing the door. Uh, this goes back probably about eight years ago, but there was a a pretty good AM station that was for sale by auction in Colorado Springs. And it had a listening radius all the way down to, to Trinidad. And we, we like to do radio ministry here at Rocky Mountain Calvary. So as a board of elders, we, we put in a bid for this AM radio station. And we just barely got beat out by, by somebody else. And I was a little bit disappointed. But now looking back, I'm like, Lord, praise God that we don't own an AM radio station. Like, Things have changed so much in an eight to, to ten year period. Like, what would we be doing with, a, with an AM radio station? <laughs> Punt that sucker, right? Like, who in the world wants one of those? We would have been putting it up for auction, you know, just trying to get a little bit of, little bit of money out of it. It was almost three summers ago, and a friend of mine calls me, and he was like, I, there's this camp just outside of Fort Collins, and they're looking to give it away. And they've heard about Rocky Mountain Calvary. There was a connection there. And they, they, they want to talk to you guys about it. And I, I love the outdoors. And I've always thought, man, it would be so neat for 
RMC to have a camp, but it doesn't seem uh, feasibly possible. So we drive up there, meet with this guy who, who owns this camp, and he'd started it as a family camp, but could never really make it work. He was a businessman, but he says, I'm terrible at running camps. I'm just looking for a ministry to be able to, to give this to. So we pray about it as a board of elders. We say, well, let's make them just a proposal. You know, you can give it to us for free. We love those kind of proposals. And, uh, you know, got him all of our financials and wrote him up this, this letter and stuff. And, and I was really excited about it. And then he said no. And he ended up giving it to the city of Fort Collins. And I was, I was disappointed about that. I was like, man, this could have been used for, for kingdom purposes. And now I drive through Denver. And if I ever make a trip up north, I'm like, Lord, you're so wise. If we owned a camp up in Fort Collins, we would lose our salvation just trying to drive <laughs> from Colorado Springs up to this camp. I mean, you guys would be so frustrated if you signed up to go to a retreat and you left on a Friday at four, got off work early, and then got to camp at 11 at night because you were stuck in traffic. You know, it's like, God, you're so good. Like, you know, you know better than, 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 than I know. And as we were praying about this campus, uh, we were looking at a, renting a school on the southwest uh, part of, of town. And the windstorm that came in last January blew the roof off of the church right across the street uh, from the church. And we showed up at this meeting with the school, and the administrator he thought that he was saying yes to one church, but he was saying yes to two churches because we both had Calvary in our name. So we showed up at the meeting and this other church showed up at the meeting. He's like, you guys don't know each other? We're like, no, <laughs> you know? And, and it was clear that God was closing that door. Like that church really needed to rent, rent the school and, and not us. And then, then we became aware of this church building out in Ellicott. And, you know, it's not a place that you dream about planting a church in Ellicott, uh, Colorado, you know, but it's been so sweet to see God open the door, and there was a lot of things in that process that the door could have closed, but God opened the door for us, and there's been so much fruit. There's been so much spiritual need there, and seeing people come to Christ, and people that needed a church home, some people that were driving from out east to come into the the central campus, and, and the Lord in his timing and his grace he opened a door that no one can close. And I just want to encourage that in your own life as well, because I'm sure you have some closed doors that feel disappointing. You go, man, this, this didn't work out the way I thought it would. We really wanted to buy this house, and it didn't work out. I had my heart set on this, this job, you know. I was really praying that God would set me free from this physical illness, and maybe the Lord, the Lord chose not to. And for, for us to be able to trust the Lord and say, God, okay, if you've closed the door, I know that you know what's best for me. And then when God's opened the door, to be willing to step through it. And if we look closely here, it says, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little bit of strength. With a closed door, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't open it even if we've tried. But with an open door, we have a choice whether we're going to go in it or not. Whether we're going to have the faith to step through this, this, this open door. And then what really causes us from stepping into new opportunities sometimes is we have a little strength. We have a little bit of strength. So this church has a divine opportunity, number one. But number two, they have godly weakness. They have godly weakness. It's important for us to realize 
that we don't have strength. The greatest strength of the church of Philippi is they weren't relying upon their own strength. And maybe you're at a place where you're saying, I do feel like there's opportunity. I do feel like there's this this open door, but I don't have the strength to be able to do it. You're right where God wants you to be. God says, I've opened this door for you because you do have a little strength. You're going to rely on my strength, and I'm going to receive the glory for it. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians and look at chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Paul is wrestling with his own weakness. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 7. Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities and my reproach and my need and my distress for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Paul embraced his weakness. He embraced his thorn in the flesh. He stopped trying to run away from it. He says, Lord, you've given this to me. You've allowed this in my life. You could take it away if you want to take it away. So God, I would much rather have weakness so that your power could be poured out through, through my life. I don't know about you, but I tend to run away from feelings like I'm overwhelmed. Statements like, I don't have any strength. I'm wiped out. I I can't do this. But that's exactly where God wants us to be. Because in little strength, then we rely upon the Lord. There's never been a step of faith for me where I've ever felt equipped or qualified. How about for you? I'm always going like, Lord, do do, do you know what you're doing? Like, you're asking me to do this? But remember, it's not about us. It's about the Lord. It's about his faithfulness. So divine opportunity, but also godly weakness, but then tremendous faithfulness. Notice at the end of verse 8, they've kept my word and they've not denied my name. What a great encouragement to this church. You, you've kept the faith. You haven't de- denied my name. You're obedient to the word of God. We want to be faithful in our lives. And be faithful to the word. Be faithful in the little things. Don't deny the name of Christ. Faithfulness matters to the Lord. Verse 9 and 10, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I'll make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Apparently, the church of Philadelphia was being persecuted by the local synagogue. And here, Jesus calls it the synagogue of Satan. He says they call themselves Jews, but they're not truly Jews. They haven't surrendered their heart to me. And God's going to humble these enemies of the church. And at some point, they're going to come and, and recognize that Jesus loves this church. God's promising this to them. Again, he encourages them, because you've kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. As we're in the book of Revelation, we know it goes on to describe the wrath of the Lamb. And here Jesus is promising to spare this church from the tribulation. 
that's gonna test the whole earth. It's, it's speaking of a time of judgment that's gonna come upon the whole earth. Verse 11, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one will take your crown. Jesus says, I'm coming. Look for my soon return. As they're experiencing persecution, Jesus is gonna come and make it right. Guard what's been entrusted to you, that nobody take your crown. May we be encouraged Jesus is returning. He's coming back. That, that's the message. Some of us may have differing views on end-time events. We're going to talk about that a lot more as we get into the book of Revelation. But what we all agree on is Jesus is coming. And he's the one that's going to make things right. And be encouraged by that. So hold fast to what you have. Here's the promise to those who overcome. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. That's a great promise. We think of the the pillars in the temple in the the Old Testament, and apparently they were such impressive pillars that they got their own names. It was Boaz and Jachin. They would come in and see these pillars and go, well, there's Boaz and there's there's Jachin. And God's saying, you're going to be a pillar in my temple in heaven, and you're going to be in my presence and you're, you're not going to depart any, any longer. Sometimes people are so involved with the people of God. They're, they're so in love with the Lord and the body of Christ. There's ex, this expression, you're a pillar in the church. You know, God's, God's used you to provide strength and stability. And that's the understanding here. I love this promise in verse 12. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So three things that get written upon this church in eternity. God's name, the name of God's city, New Jerusalem, and then Jesus' new name is also placed uh, upon them. All of them identifies themselves in their relationship with God. They belong to God. They belong to the Father. They belong in heaven. They belong in the New Jerusalem and they belong to Jesus. Each of these churches are encouraged to persevere, to overcome, to to not give up, and the reward is waiting for those who continue. So verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is God encouraging you? Is he speaking to you, saying you're you're faithful? Thank you for being faithful. Continue uh, to be faithful. Is he showing you an open door? that he wants you to, to step through. Maybe you felt like, I, I can't step through this. I have a little strength. I, I don't have enough time. I'm already stretched too thin. And God's saying, no, I've opened up uh, this door for you. Take that step of faith. Walk through that, that open door. So that's the church of Philippi. And then we go on to the church of Laodicea in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. Laodicea was a wealthy city primarily because of their industry with wool. They were able to to make black, shiny wool, and because of it, it was very profitable. Also, they had a medical school that had eye salve. They would focus on the eye the treatment of the eye, and then their water was supplied through pipes. It was piped in through another city, and Jesus is going to use all of those things as he writes this letter to the church of Laodicea. They were 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. The attributes of Christ, the first one is the amen. 
Kind of an interesting attribute of Christ. What does the word amen mean? You know, sometimes we, we say amen in church. We, we say amen at the end of our prayers. But what does it mean? It means so be it. So if someone's praying and we're in agreement, we say amen. Yeah, so be it. I, I'm with you. I, I'm going before the Lord with you in this, this prayer. You know, if, if someone's sharing the word and it resonates in our hearts and we say, we say amen, we're like, so be it. it. It resonates with me. So what does it mean when Jesus is the amen? Amen means so be it. When Christ speaks it, so be it. He, he has the ultimate authority. So him being the amen shows that he's the ultimate authority. The true and faithful witness are very important to be faithful, but to be true. So Christ is true, but he's also faithful. And in truth and faithfulness, he expressed who the Father is. The beginning of the creation of God doesn't mean that Jesus is created. He's God. He is the creator. What this does mean is it speaks of Christ's position. It speaks that he was before creation. In verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Christ then speaks to their lukewarm state. And he says, you're not cold and you're not hot. You're lukewarm and I wish that you were cold or hot. And the correction comes in here first that you're neither cold nor hot. Hot water is great, isn't it? Get some hot coffee. I had some nice tea right before the service and it was hot. Cold is nice. If you have a hot day and you get a nice cold glass of water, but lukewarm, not so much, right? Have a, have a nice lukewarm cup of milk. Not so good, right? Hot milk, Steamer could be nice. Cold milk, definitely nice. Lukewarm milk, not so much. And Jesus writes to this church and he's saying, look, here's your state. Here's my evaluation of, of this church. Is you're not hot and you're not cold. You're, you're somewhere lukewarm. And this city would experience this, Laodicea, as they had their water p- piped in coming to them. By the time it arrived, it was, it was lukewarm. So as we look at this in our own hearts and our own lives, is our heart on fire for Jesus Christ or is it cold towards Jesus Christ or is it simply kind of lukewarm? And it's convicting because a lot of times this is where our heart can tend to go. You know, if we're not connected to Christ and pressing into Christ, we're going to kind of naturally go to a lukewarm state. And a lot of times as believers, we might not necessarily go to a completely cold state, but we're not necessarily hot as well. And this is probably the most miserable place to be spiritually, isn't it? Because we've got too much of the world in us to really enjoy the Lord, but we have too much of the Lord in us to really enjoy the world. So we're just in this lukewarm state. And what Jesus says is convicting also because he says, I wish that you were either hot or that you were cold. A lot of times when we would maybe counsel others or evaluate our own lives, we go, maybe the lukewarm state's not so bad. You know, I'll just stay in this lukewarm state. But 
many times when we're in the lukewarm state, we don't feel the weight of our sin, which will ultimately result in repentance. I think of the prodigal son. It was the wisdom of the father that the father said, if you want a cold state, go for it. If you don't want to be here, and you don't want to have the benefits of the fellowship of my home, here's the inheritance. You can have it all and go in this cold state. Go ahead. Run with it till the end. And the prodigal son does when he gets the consequences of it. Then he says, it's better in my father's house. If we go to a cold state, many times we will experience the end result of our sin and long to be back, back with Christ. Ultimately, it would be God's desire that we wouldn't go to a cold state, that we wouldn't be in a lukewarm state, that we would have a heart that is on fire for the Lord. In Joshua 24, verse 15, it says, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were on the other side of the river, or on the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you will dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's like, evaluate it. And if you think that it's evil to follow the Lord, then you choose for yourself who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It's clear here God doesn't want us on the fence. He wants us to be able at a place to say, I'm not perfect, but I'm for the Lord. I, I am love Christ. I'm committed to Christ. I want to follow Christ. I don't want to be in this lukewarm state. Verse 16, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's a pretty descriptive verse. I thought about titling this message, the things that make Jesus vomit. The urge to regurge. The I was reflecting on the book of Psalms and I was teaching through the book of Psalms on Wednesday night or through the Bible study. So it was quite a few years ago. And about five o'clock, my stomach started to feel weird. It wasn't too bad, but just a little bit like it, it feels a little weird. So I think I'll be fine. And by the time that it came to teach, I was like, I better sit down. So I was sitting on a stool reading through Psalms, and I was reading really slow because I was feeling so sick. I got about 20 minutes into the message, and I realized I'm not going to make it through this message. So right like this, I just paused, and I said, guys, I'm getting sick. I've got to go. So I go out the backstage, and thankfully, our worship pastor at the time, he, he was listening, so he came out to do more worship. And you have these thoughts when you're about ready to vomit. Like, I don't want to be in the church restroom <laughs> vomiting my guts out, you know? It's like, hey, Pastor Eric, how are you doing, you know? It's, uh, so I got in my car, and I was like, maybe I can make it home, right, you know? And so I'm driving as fast as I can, and I fly in the house, and Amber and some of the kids were already home because they were sick, and I, I don't say hi to him or anything. I just run to the bathroom and I completely lost it. Like just vomit everywhere, right? Well, that was for free. I just wanted to. 
Every, every pastor's nightmare to actually get sick while, while you're teaching. And so here Jesus is saying, this is something that makes me vomit. Like when you get sick, you've got something inside of you that says, this has got to go. This is not good for my body. It's got to get out of my body. And so Jesus is making a statement here where he's saying, this, this is not good for, for my body. The church is, is my body. And I would rather you choose. I would rather you choose between being cold or hot. And if you remain in this lukewarm state, I'm going to, to vomit you, you out. And when we read this at first passing, this seems like a statement of rejection. You know, if someone was going to say, if you keep doing this, you're going to make me throw up, right? You know, like, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. We would think that we would be completely being rejected. But as we go further into this, we actually see that Jesus is calling him to repentance. Everything about Jesus here is saying, I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to turn, turn back to me. So, so don't take this. If you find yourself at a lukewarm state that, that Jesus is done with you, it's the exact opposite. He's calling us back to relationship with him. And I think we've all been at the place that the church of Laodicea is at, if we're honest. You know, there's times that we get lukewarm. We go, yeah, here was a time where I was walking with the Lord. And here's a time that I was cold, but, but here's a time that I was, was lukewarm. And thank you, thankfully, Jesus calls us back to himself. In verse 17, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So you have their prideful perception of themselves in Christ's evaluation of themselves. And their prideful perception of themselves is, I'm rich. And they were wealthy. They've in a place where they say, we've become wealthy and we have need of nothing. And I don't think that this is coincidence that their wealth and things got in their way of their relationship with the Lord. Now, is there anything wrong with money? Is there anything wrong with wealth? No. It's a tool that can be used for God's glory. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And you read through the Old Testament, and a lot of the kings stumbled when they were blessed. A lot of the kings, when they were, were blessed financially, that's when their hearts drifted away from the Lord. And I think wisdom in the scriptures would tell us, navigate the blessings that God gives in our lives carefully. Because the more stuff you have, the easier it is to fall in love with stuff. So the story of the church of Laodicea may have went somewhere like this. As the local economy got better, the church had more money. And they didn't have as many financial needs. And their hearts slowly focused more and more on their possessions and their wealth and less and less on a relationship with Christ. And before you know it, it's a wealthy church financially, but it's a poor church spiritually. So if we're honest and we look at our culture, we go, man, we have been blessed. You may say, I don't feel wealthy. I'm poor. I'm struggling to make ends meet. But when we compare our country to the poverty that's around the world, there's a lot of wealth in in the United States. And to say, we need to be on guard on this. We need to be careful that we're not serving two masters, that we're not trying to love Christ and love money, that, that Christ really has the priority 
in our lives and our stuff isn't squeezing out a passion for a relationship with Christ that it isn't distracting us from what is most important and here Jesus says this is how I see you you're you're wretched you're miserable you're poor you're blind and you're naked and again Jesus isn't getting on the boxing gloves and and just wanting to beat this church up he's saying these things out of love he's wanting them to see their accurate spiritual condition so that they'll turn back to Christ and the voice of Jesus is look you really need me and you've pushed me out of your life And when we drift away from the Lord, this is very quickly where we become, isn't it? So here's the answer that Jesus gives. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus says, I want you to buy gold refined in the fire. So this is difficult to understand a little bit. How do we buy from God? God's using this as an illustration because his currency is different. His currency is faith and humility. The way we receive from the Lord is faith and humility. We don't come before the Lord and say, okay, God, I'm ready to buy some of your gold that's refined in the fire. We come before him and we say, God, I'm poor, I'm naked, I'm wretched. I'm broken, I've, I've drifted from you, I'm lukewarm, and we're humble. And then we have faith in God's ability to provide resurrection, power, and life into us. And as we take his counsel, and we come in faith, and we come in humility, then he provides something that's been refined in a fire, something that really has value, and we're truly rich, not just financially rich, but spiritually rich. They have these garments of black wool, but Jesus wants to provide them with white garments through his, his righteousness, so that their nakedness is covered, it, it's cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and then their eyes to see differently, and why would Jesus, why would Jesus say, you know, you need to get some eye salve because their eyes, they're seeing the world wrongly. We call it worldview, don't we? That's what we call it in our culture. Worldview means how you see the world. They're seeing the world wrongly. They're seeing the world simply from a financial perspective and not through a godly perspective. And Jesus is saying, I want you to see things differently. I want you to see things from my perspective. Let's turn back to Isaiah 55. It reminds me a lot of what the prophet Isaiah said as well. Isaiah 55. I think we can all relate to this. This is verse 1 of Isaiah 55. Ho! How many times do you hear that in your Bible? (laughs) What does that mean? It's like, stop and listen. Let me get your attention. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk. So are you thirsty? Come and buy of God. Well, I don't have any money. How how can I buy of God? Well, remember his currency is faith and humility. Verse two, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Ever been there? Come on, right? We're spending our money in all these places thinking this is going to satisfy, this is going to satisfy, this is going to satisfy. And it leaves us unsatisfied. 
God says, listen carefully to me and eat what's good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the true mercies of David. So I picture the church of Laodicea investing all of these things instead of investing in a relationship with Christ. And Jesus is saying, come back. Invest in a relationship with me. Come to me in faith. Come to me in humility. And I'm going to give you true satisfaction that's found in a relationship with me. Let's go back to Revelation 3 and look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. God's love. God loves the church of Laodicea. He loves them so much that he doesn't want them to be lukewarm anymore. So he rebukes them and he corrects them. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that a father disciplines the child that he loves. And our ultimate heavenly father disciplines us because he loves us. We don't see love that way. We don't see rebuke as being loving. We oftentimes feel like someone's being too harsh or they don't care for us. You could really say that this is a harsh rebuke, right? Christ is very honest, but it's because he loves this church. And if you feel rebuked by Christ or corrected by Christ, it's because he loves you. It's because he loves me. It's proof that we're his child. Do you discipline other people's kids? I hope not. It's probably going to get you in trouble, right? If you see a kid misbehaving in the grocery store and you went up and you began to to correct someone else's child, that's not going to go very well, right? But do you discipline your own children? I hope so. I hope so. Because they're your children and that's evidence that you love them to give them loving, instructional training consequences for, for, for their decisions. So it's proof, God's correction is proof that you belong to the Lord, that you're a legitimate child of the Lord. So he's saying, I love you. That's why I'm rebuking you, and that's why I'm chastening you. Be zealous and repent, church of Laodicea. Allow your love to be reignited. Be passionate about Christ and repent. Do we respond to the correction that God gives us? If this lukewarm message resonates with us, don't get beat up with condemnation. Don't think that God doesn't love you or there's no hope for us. Simply respond and say, okay, Lord, you love me and you're correcting me through your word. This is a very gentle way for God to bring correction in our lives. In the comfort of the sanctuary, reading the word. If it resonates that we're in a lukewarm state and this is what God uses to jolt us out, it's easier than getting vomited out first, right? Right? And we're splattered everywhere and we go, okay, Jesus, I get it. It's time. I need to make you the the priority once again. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Three things to take note in this verse. And the first is Christ's location. Where's Christ? He's outside. He's outside knocking to come in. The church has chosen to put Christ on the outside. How many times have we done the same? Where we've said, Jesus, you're you're at the outside of my life instead of the center of my life. 
Many times this verse is used in the context of salvation, and I don't think that it's wrong. But I don't think that this is primarily speaking about salvation. It's speaking to believers, and Jesus is giving an illustration to lukewarm believers and saying, you have put me on the outside of your life. I'm longing to come back and be the center of your life and for us to have fellowship once again. You change the locks, that's what Jesus is saying. I want to be with you, but you've put me on the outside. And then look at Christ's actions. What's Jesus doing? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him. So Jesus is speaking and Jesus is knocking. He continues to pursue us. When we get busy, when we get distracted, when we start chasing all the things of this world, thinking it's going to bring satisfaction, Jesus is knocking on the door of my heart, knocking on the door of my life, saying, Eric, I'm ready to spend time with you. I'm knocking. I'm speaking. Will, will you respond? Just patiently, continuing to knock, continuing to speak, continuing to pursue. There's a famous painting by Holman Hunt and if you look closely, you see Jesus knocking on a door, and there's no doorknob on the outside. He did it on purpose to illustrate that Jesus waits for us to open the door. It's been said by many, Jesus is a gentleman. He's going to knock, and he's going to speak, but he's not going to kick down the door. He's not going to say, I'm God, I created you. I brought you into this world. I can take you out. I'm kicking the door down. And we're spending time together. He has every right to be able to do that. But instead, he just simply says, I'm knocking. I'm speaking. Are you listening? And sometimes I get so busy, we get so busy, that we don't even hear the knocking anymore. All we hear is the vibration of our cell phones. The vibrating box of death, right? <laughs> that we no longer hear the voice of Christ. Get so consumed with, with other pursuits that I fail to hear the, the voice of Christ drawing me back to that, that place of fellowship. I'm guilty. And then it's Christ's invitation. He says, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This doesn't sound like an angry savior that's saying there's no hope for you. He's speaking in very truthful language to get their attention and their repentance. And he's saying, if you will open up the door to me, then I will come in and dine and he with me. It's always the intent of Christ is fellowship and relationship with us. In the Middle East still to this day, to sit down and share a meal with someone is very personal and you take a lot of time to, to do so. And the expression of a meal is that you're sharing food in common and you're becoming one. You're sharing the same loaf of bread and you're, you're one. You're sh sharing the same meat and you're one. And we miss out on that in our, in our culture, you know. But when Jesus says, I want to come in and have a meal with you, it's speaking of deep friendship. It's speaking of relationship and unity with Christ. He's calling us back into relationship with him. And then he gives this amazing promise in verse 21. To him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What a gracious promise from a living Savior to a lukewarm church. Saying, look, if you're willing to repent, if you're willing to come back into fellowship with me, open up the door of your life uh, to me again, 
then I am going to allow you to sit upon my throne. When you overcome, when your, your life is done, just like I overcame and I sit upon the throne. In verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening to God's voice? Are we listening to the Spirit? These seven letters are very practical and they're very applicable. And tonight, with the church of Philippi, is there an open door that God wants you to walk through? And I gotta tell you, you're gonna be blessed more than anybody else. Others will be blessed, God will be glorified, but you're gonna be blessed to walk through those open doors. No one can close them. God's gonna continue to keep that door open. All you gotta do is say yes to the Lord. I got a little strength. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't have all the answers. I'm overwhelmed, but I can clearly see that this door is open. And keep knocking, you know? There's a lot of closed doors before there's one open door. And then, am I missing out with friendship with God? Am I missing out on friendship with God? Have I become like the the church of Laodicea? I'm no longer seeking first the kingdom of God, and Jesus is here, and he's knocking, and he's speaking, saying, open up the door of your life to me, and I'll come in and I'll sup with you. And you'll overcome and you'll have a position on my throne. So let's pray together. Father, we admit to you that we get distracted. That we get to a place where we're lukewarm. Get consumed with all of these things of this world. We don't hear you knocking and hear you, your voice pursuing God, we want to surrender our hearts and lives afresh to you, to say yes to you. Jesus, come in. We open up the door of our life to you. It's not pretty. Lord, and you see our brokenness. You see our nakedness. You see our wretchedness. But yet, you want to come in and dine with us. And you're longing for us to come to you in humility and come to you in faith and God, we don't want to just pursue the things of this world and come up empty. We want to receive that gold from you and that garment from you and have you touch our eyes and have you change our perspective. God, for those that you've placed an open door before them, would you give them faith and encouragement, protect them from fear and doubt and the discouragement of the enemy? God, and if it's your will in our lives and in this church, would you be faithful to continue to open up doors for us to walk through? So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.